Just read on. Is that okay? Thanks. Very often, when I observe other people's actions, I attribute to them my motivations. If I were to engage in that same action, which is often not true at all, and I do it to friends as well as to people I don't know at all. In my closest relationships. I very often find myself making assumptions that I know the motivation behind what was just done, the words that were said, the actions that were taken. So, in this particular case, we make assumptions about the Pharisees and why they engaged their faith the way they did. Let me give a little bit more history to some of the motivation, or at least to some of the Pharisees. They were um, zealous, certainly. At the time of this incident, they were in the minority. They weren't when John wrote the book, but they were in this interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus. There are others who controlled the ruling council; those who controlled how the temple was run. The Pharisees were the minority group, but the Pharisees had a very important agenda. You see, at the time when Jesus walked this earth. 
just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believeth on him might have eternal life. This is startling in so many ways. Nicodemus has this paradigm. We're the chosen people. We are God's elect. Jesus is saying, that God has sent the Son of Man that all might believe. This throws off Nicodemus' understanding of the world and his plan for himself. But the reference that Jesus makes, Numbers chapter 21 is where it comes from. It appears as if the psalmist writes about it in Psalm 107. It's a passage that was probably familiar to the people it is a passage that is, oh, just gives me the heebie-jeebies. There are a lot of passages, and I know that it's not a theological term description, heebie-jeebie, but there are a lot of passages that make you uncomfortable or that, that uh, kind of push you in particular directions. There are others that just, this one is still, the whole paragraph's all about snakes, and snakes are not my favorite creature. Um, so that is an appropriate term, heebie-jeebie, I think, particularly because we have the whole story of creation and what happened in the Garden of Eden. And I, I think I'm justified in having that view about snakes. But in this particular passage, there are snakes that invade the camp of the Israelites. I don't work very well with snakes. I have tried to work on that. That's why that whole paragraph is incredibly uncomfortable. There was a time when my um, wife, was we had our oldest as a toddler and she was very pregnant with our second child. I don't know what very pregnant means. You're either pregnant or you're on But she was great with child. That's what I'm trying to say. And I had left for the day and my oldest wanders into the bedroom and she'd gone into the bathroom and she'd come out and she was trying to awaken my wife and she said, Mommy, there's a, a large worm right in the middle of the floor in the bathroom. And Kay's just trying to, you know, shake the sleepiness out of her head. What? And she's persistent. And Kay walks in and sees right in the middle of the bathroom floor a snake. And that's probably wise that she didn't call me. Um, I didn't have my knight in shiny in the armor outfit uh, for snakes. I probably would have just said, call the realtor, we need to move, would probably been my solution. But she um, pushed uh, my daughter off to the side, and she grabbed several three-ply Kleenexes, which is the best tool you can have against snake, I'm sure, and um, stared the snake down. She told me they just looked eye-to-eye for a few moments. As his tongue came out, she described the whole scene to me. And I don't know what the snake was thinking, but in kind of the snake hierarchy of who's more powerful, for him to see that my wife had swallowed something as large as she had swallowed in the snake realm, that's a really big deal, you know? Don't mess with this one, because look what she's able to do. So she takes the Kleenexes and in just one quick motion, as it had kind of coiled up, she scooped it, put it in the 
Testament. God has to deal with it. The New Testament described through Jesus' work. The Holy Spirit has to move in. Grumbling, muttering, and murmuring. It is just so unbecoming, but it's an offense to God. And here we find that not only has God protected them, watched over them, but God has provided for them. Provided daily food. And they've grown weary of their food. They didn't plant it. They didn't harvest it. They didn't work to get it. Daily God provided it. All they had to do was collect it. And yet, they were grumbling. How life was so miserable. It's one of those moments that I think is one of the worst for the Israelites. When we are at our worst, well, in the midst of that murmuring and grumbling, God allowed snakes to enter into the camp. Apparently, they were everywhere. They had picked the wrong place to set up camp. And they were bitten by venomous or poisonous snakes. It says some of the people died. And they went to Moses and they said, We've sinned. Please pray on our behalf that God might save us. Moses went to prayer. God heard Moses' prayer. And God said, Take a rod snake, put it up on a pole, and when people look at it, they will die. It's a strange story in so many ways. And interesting how Jesus uses it in John chapter 3. I find it interesting that God could, after hearing the prayer, just make the snakes go away. That would seem to be like a great solution for me. But in the New Testament, as Jesus is making the application to the Messianic hopes that the people have, he said, just like the snake was lifted up on a pole, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes on him might have eternal life. You see, the problem is not the snake, the people. It's me. So often we think about what we need to do to make things right, and we think about the sins that we commit. And sometimes when we say we're at our worst, we say, well, I was at my, my worst when I did that particular thing, or I thought that particular thought. So the consequences of my behavior resulted in harm to others and to myself. And it's true that if you steal, you should stop stealing, and if you lie, you should stop lying. But the lie is not the problem. I mean, it can create problems for others, and it can create problems for yourself. And stealing is not the problem. It's the heart that leads to that action that's the problem. It's like Lucy saying to Charlie Brown, Charlie Brown, do you know what your trouble is? And he says, what's my trouble, Lucy? And she says, the trouble with you, Charlie Brown, is that you are you. And he says, well, how do I fix that, Lucy? And she says, well, I don't pretend to give advice on how to fix the problem. I just identify the problem. But she's right. The problem is me. And I think sometimes that the solution then is me. But that's not the 
solution at all. Our passage not only identifies the problem, but it gives us a solution as well. When are we at our worst? It can be in some of those acts. It can be in the ways in which our approach and our attitude and our spirit toward others is every bit as toxic as the venom of the snakes. I've not been in a place where snakes were biting and people were dying. But it doesn't take any imagination at all for me to put myself in places where I have felt the venomous bite of another person's words or actions. And then if I'm honest enough with myself to recognize that there have been times when I have been the one who has created such a toxic setting and situation. Is it much of a stretch to say how quickly we humans can create our own snake pit? It's the world in which we live. And I wonder if it's not true that sometimes when we're at our worst is when we know the truth and don't give in to it. Maybe the worst is when we're the church and not acting like the bride of Christ. What could be more disconcerting to a world that's looking for some evidence of light and grace and truth? And for those who claim they know the truth, to act like snakes. But even in that moment, at the worst of our worst, even in the midst of arrogance and not even admitting when we're at our worst, it says that at our worst, Christ was lifted up. That we might be saved and experience eternal life. It's not a request that we get it all fixed up, that we come to God having washed clean, The message is that at our worst moments, there Jesus is. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that we might have eternal life. This is the great promise, the great symbol, that we might turn and believe that the Son of Man was lifted up on the pole. So it wouldn't be anything that we had done that we could boast, because always when we start boasting, it begins to get quite toxic. But when we boast in Christ, that's where grace starts pouring into the world. That's where transformation begins to happen. Nicodemus came at night. We'll find Nicodemus at the end of this story with Joseph of Arimathea taking the body of Christ down off the cross. And I think he had to do it in light. 
a lot of a lot that's said in this gospel about darkness and the evil that's sometimes associated with darkness. But there is in this gospel message this wonderful depiction of dark and light, much like the great painter Rembrandt, who was known as the light dark painter who had mastered the technique of allowing darkness and light to be juxtaposed to show characteristics that would never otherwise be seen. Because you see, it's out of the void that God created. It's out of the silence that God's voice was heard. It's in the darkness that we see lights The journey of Lent takes us through the darkness. It is a reminder that we sometimes need to walk through those places to understand what God is trying to do in our life. Because it's in those darkest of dark places where Jesus says once again, believe on me and you'll catch a glimpse of heaven and eternal life. So I'd like to ask this morning, you at your worst, have you brought up with you this morning? Be it recent, a long time in the past. The ways in which we take some of our worst moments and then throw that toxic stuff onto others. Or when we feel like that's not appropriate to do, we just turn it inward on ourselves. Allow that toxic stuff to start eating away who we are. Who God called us to be. What God claims over your life. At our worst, that's where Christ is. And in those moments this morning, Christ invites us receive grace, forgiveness, and love. Father in heaven, we come from so many different places this morning. Places where we work and live. Different giftedness and jobs you've given to us. Different people with whom we interact. Yet this morning we come on level ground, invited by you, knowing that it's nothing we've done that brings us to this place, but it is your grace that allows us to pull up to the table where you are seated. And here you offer us living water, the bread of life. Father, in those places where we have put on a great smile and a great front, but we have kept account of all wrongs. Where we have not been patient, not been kind. Where we have allowed the toxic side of our life to become the defining characteristic of 
place of freedom. Because, Lord, the problem is us, we ask you to transform us from the inside out. 